Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your co-host, Shubhana Xavier. In each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we connect with an author of a recently published book and we chat with them. In today's episode, I'm joined by Brennan D. Ingram. Revival from Below, the Theoban Movement and Global Islam by Brennan D. Ingram is a timely study of the Theoban Movement from its inception in India to its transnational contemporary context in South Africa. Through careful analysis of historical textual discourses, Ingram carefully guides his readers through important polemics that manifested amongst the Deoband ulama and its implications for Muslim publics on their performance of a traditional Islam. The study then goes on to highlight why and how the Deoband movement's relationship to Sufism has been mischaracterized and crucially situates the Deoband ulama's own complex relationship with Sufism, especially Sufi ethics and comportment. Overall, Ingram challenges his readers to think more carefully about Sufism in the 21st century. This book is a must-read for those interested in Sufism, South Asian Islam, and global transnational Islam. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brennan D. Ingram. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that when we connect with authors, if they could share something about their intellectual journey and what led to the process um, of their book. So I wondered if you could um, share that process with us. Sure. Um, so thank you again, Shobhan. I'm, I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Um, I uh, was especially excited when I found out that you would be doing the interview because I, I think that your work on transnational Sufism uh, kind of makes it a good fit um, for this conversation. And I've also been a big fan of the new book series for a long time. And so it's really exciting to finally get a chance to do an interview about my own book. Um, so I don't know how far back you want me to go, but um, I think the kind of intellectual story of how this came together really begins with me in college. Um, I'm originally from Mississippi, and I went to a small liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon called Reed College. And I very quickly realized that I wanted to be a religion major at Reed. Um, I also very quickly realized that I was especially interested in Islam. And so I took a number of courses in Islamic studies at Reed. Um, I began to study Arabic. Um, uh, Reed didn't have Arabic, so I went to Portland State for that. Um, And then my interest in South Asia specifically really came together when I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the Ahmadiyya, um, which is a um, kind of uh, Muslim movement that emerged um, in the kind of same period in which the Deobandis did, the late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, so my interest in Islam in South Asia was beginning to come together around the same time that 9-11 happened. And I also hesitate in, in, in really saying that 9-11 was an impetus for me to go into Islamic studies. I, I don't think it was. I was already interested in it. But what it did for me was it kind of gave me a larger political context for the urgency of studying Islam. And so um, I knew at that point that I wanted to do Islamic studies on the graduate level. I didn't yet know exactly what I wanted to study. And so I actually spent a year after college in India. Um, I was uh, teaching at a school in Varanasi and doing quite a bit of traveling. That's when I began to study Hindi and Urdu. Um, and then I uh, decided that, uh, you know, after looking at various programs, that UNC Chapel Hill made the most sense for me. So I started at UNC, I believe, in 2005. And at UNC, I worked with Carl Ernst, you know, at that time and and today, if, if, if someone wants to study South Asian Sufism, he's really the, you know, the preeminent scholar um, to do that with. Uh, but I also began to study with uh, Bruce Lawrence and Ibrahim Musa, who were at Duke at the time, uh, Omid Safi, who was at UNC. 
and uh, I kind of triangulated between these various scholars' interests in the sense that um, I began to become increasingly interested in Islamic law. Um, of course, I was already interested in Sufism. And when you are interested in Islamic law and Sufism in South Asia in the modern period, you naturally eventually start to, to uh, read about the Diobandis. Uh, I think I first read Barbara Metcalf's uh, monograph on the Deobandis in my first year um, in graduate school. And, and after that, I just became more and more interested. Um, in terms of the larger questions that, I, that motivated me to take on the subject, I was especially interested at the time, really, in two, and still am. Um, it, one is that the Deobandis have been, I think, misrepresented in the larger discourse about Sufism especially since the, the advent of the war on terror. And, and I can say more about this later on if you'd like, but this is one in which I think it's familiar to most scholars, but not so familiar to kind of, you know, uh, non-scholarly readers. But the, the idea is that, um, the, that, that Sufism is this kind of peaceful, peaceful movement that is mostly about, you know, people dancing and and, and whirling around and communing with God. And, and of course, that is an important part of Sufism. But uh, historically, um, and I would say contemporaneously as well, uh, Sufism has just as much been about the law, right? It's been about uh, uh, aligning one's uh, self with the, the ideals of the Quran and the Sunnah, right? and, and aligning oneself with, with the Sharia. And in that kind of, um, I think, artificial dichotomy between Sufism and the law that has, uh, it didn't emerge in the last 20 years, but it's really accelerated, I think, um, in the last 20 years, uh, the Deobandis have been kind of isolated because they subscribe to a very kind of uh, legalistic um, type of Sufism that is not really legible in many ways to the more kind of common idea that many people have about Sufism. And briefly, I'll say the second thing that motivated me to take on this project was I was becoming more and more interested in trans-regional and transnational religion. So how do religious ideas, texts, institutions, etc., change and adapt or fail to adapt as they move around, as they, especially as they uh, move across regions and, and borders and 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 uh, you know, especially from one nation state to an, to the, to another, and of course the the Indian Ocean in the British colonial period was a kind of cauldron for um, inter and intra regional exchange of ideas. And so, I the, the kind of core question that uh, was at the basis of the dissertation on which this book is based is how did uh, Deobandi's thinking about Sufism change? as it began to travel through Indian Ocean context from South Asia to South Africa. And it is a rich book with uh, lots of um, different pieces, um, and I'm really excited to get into some of those pieces with you today. Um, I did want to ask you, out of curiosity for myself, what was your methodological process like? Because um, I was thinking about some of the texts that you were engaging with, um, and again, the transnational component, um, kind of South Africa to South Asia, um, and the historical and the contemporary sometimes. So what was your methodological process when you were writing this? Yeah, so my, my methodology was a combination of um, textual analysis, site visits, and archival work. Um, the, the, the texts that I'm working with in the book are mostly texts in Urdu from late 19th and early 20th century India, uh, as well as uh, texts in both Urdu and English from mostly mid to late 20th century South Africa. Uh, which is also the kind of um, uh, chronological uh, kind of uh, uh, range of the book. So it, 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 the beginning points to some of the antecedents for the Deobani movement um, in, in early 19th century India, but it, it really starts in the kind of 1860s and 70s. Uh, it, it shows the, the, the kind of core formation of major facets of Deobandi thought in the 19, uh, teens and 20s, uh, and then starts to chart how these ideas began to travel with Deobandi scholars to South Africa. 
uh, where because of the sort of more complex linguistic uh, environment in South Africa, Deobandi also began to write in English. And so um, the, the texts that I look at in South Africa are um, not, not exclusively, but, but for the large part, um, uh, English language uh, translations and, and in the book, I argue oversimplifications of Deobandi arguments as they appear in these kind of late 19th, early 20th century Urdu texts. Uh, and and that, that gets into a larger conversation about Muslim publics that we can talk about later. Um, but the archival work that I did exclusively in South Africa um, looked at Muslim um, uh, pamphlets, newspapers, newsletters, and other kind of um, uh, uh, paraphernalia that um, emerged through this kind of a debate about Deobandi ideas among South African Muslims, particularly among South African Muslims who were not part of the um, Indian Muslim uh, migration to South Africa that began in the 1860s, um, and and who for the most part opposed many of the core facets of of the, the Deobandi critique of Sufism. Another thing that we can talk about in a bit. Um, and so the the uh, in terms of methodology, it's kind of kind of a combination of text uh, textual analysis and the, the archival work. I mentioned site visits as well. Um, I visited multiple madrasas in India and South Africa, where I collected texts and where I spoke to uh, students, to faculty. When I first set out to do the dissertation, I thought that this ethnographic component would um, feature prominently in the the, uh, final product. And in the process of revising the dissertation into a book, the ethnographic aspect still informed many of the the ideas and arguments that I'm making. But the ethnography itself um, got kind of reshaped into and, and put in conversation with the archival part. Um, and so let's get into kind of the main, some of the main points. Um, and I guess uh, the book is on the movement, so we should start with the movement, um, the Deobandi movement. Um, what is it? Because um, the aim is really to highlight kind of the dynamism and the internal complexity that you're saying has been somewhat flattened. Um, or the texture has been lost in a lot of our public discourses and even some academic discourses. Um, and so what are some of these important nuances that you're trying to bring out with this particular study? Yeah, so, well, in terms of movement, um, I think one important thing to bear in mind is that uh, there's a, the, you, cannot, you can't ask the question of what happens as Deobandis or I would, I would argue any other kind of religious uh, people move um, without asking, in this case, who was a Deobandi. And um, the vast majority of graduates from Deobandi institutions, so uh, first of all, the, the whole Deobandi movement is really grounded in networks of madrasas. The first one, the Darulalum Deoband uh, Madrasa, founded in North India in Deoband uh, in 1866. Um, so uh, the vast majority of graduates from these institutions will study things that any Madrasa student studies: um, Islamic law, Quran, languages, Hadith, Arabic grammar. Um, it, and for the most part, with some exceptions, uh, Deobandi identity is not a part of the curriculum per se. Um, one of the things that I argue in the book is that the Deobandi critique of Sufism, um, which really revolved around critiquing Sufi devotional practices uh, in terms of this kind of uh, uh, discourse about uh, bidah or illicit innovation and shirk, um, ascribing entities, ascri- ascribing qualities uh, that are divine to entities other than God. Um, most of those um, uh Arguments about Sufism were not things and still aren't things that most Deobandi Majusa graduates really have anything to do with. So uh, the core critique uh, that I look at in the book really came out of a number of prominent Deobandi scholars, uh, most notably Ashraf Ali Tanvi, um, who 
uh, wrote about Sufism and Sufi devotional practices um, and whose texts then began to kind of circulate uh, very widely within kind of uh, emergent lay Muslim reading publics of Urdu in uh, especially the early 20th century. So there's kind of, there's the level of movement in terms of the movement of texts that's important, uh, but there's also the movement of scholars. And the reason I brought up the question of who is a Deobandi, uh, this, the first part of my answer is that as scholars who, were, who graduated from Deobandi Madrasas began to go to South Africa and South African Muslims began to travel to India to study at the Darulam Deoband and other Deobandi Madrasas, they didn't identify first and foremost as quote unquote Deobandis, right? Um, they did and continue to do what any ulama do, which is to say they are scholars of Islamic legal and theological traditions. They provide uh, advice to lay Muslims um, on, that, on the basis of that expertise. They serve as imams, they serve as scholars and writers, etc. Uh, and so that's just one, I think, important thing to, to keep in mind when we, when we talk about the movement of the Obani scholars and, uh, and, and the, the Indeobani thought as it travels with these scholars. And one of the important components that you're developing that you just mentioned is the idea of the public. And it's something that I really appreciated um, in terms of how um, the, the scholars, um, the ulama of the Deoband were relating to the public because the public was crucial, which then later is important for the development of the Tablighi Jama'at, we'll talk about in a bit. So why, why was the, the relationship or the positioning or the framing of the public or the Muslim public, as you're saying right now, very important um, also to... Um, the work that you're doing in this book. Yes. So thank you for asking that. Um, so the, 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 na- the nature of publics in general and Muslim publics specifically um, is a really important part of this book. And I really think about and approach Muslim publics from two angles um, that, that, that intersect in a lot of ways that I'll, that I'll get to in a moment. Um, the first angle is, is what I call the a kind of hermeneutical paradox at the core of the Deobandi's reformist efforts. And this paradox is that, so the, the Deobandi's critique um, certain Sufi practices, and they articulate these critiques on the basis of very complex legal arguments um, that rely on their expertise as ulama, uh, but they uh, are articulating these critiques for non-specialist lay Muslim readers who don't have that legal expertise. And so there's a kind of uh, necessary simplification of the argument to make it um, accessible to lay Muslim readers that takes place. Uh, But at the same time, uh, and you see this again and again in the the books that Deobani's write, there is this kind of constant effort to make sure readers uh, do not try to figure out these complex legal and theological issues on their own. And so they will often say, you know, read these books on your own so that you can reform yourself, so that you can reform your family. But if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, don't think that you can answer them yourself. Uh, Go to one of the ulama in your village or your town, right? Or today, you know, write. Uh, an email to you know uh, a scholar to to ask a question of, of him or her, and and so there's this tension between wanting to involve Muslim publics in their in in their in their own reform, uh, but not uh, giving Muslim publics so much kind of hermeneutic independence that they lose sight of who are the real authorities to adjudicate these matters, which are the ulama, as far as the Deobanis are concerned. So there's the kind of tension on on that level um, that has to do with how I think about and write about Muslim publics in this book. The flip side of that, and it's really uh, the kind of mirror image, uh, is is that as Deobani ideas and scholars travel, particularly in the South African context, this sort of delicate 
tension and ambivalence that I just described begins to break down in many ways because uh, South African Muslims, and you can see this in other contexts where Deobandis are prominent, but, but I look in depth at South Africa. Uh, South African Muslims uh, really start to reject not only the arguments that Deobandis are making, but the very authority of the Deobandi ulama to make those arguments at all. Um, and so one of the things that I suggest in the book is that the, the kind of uh, delicate balance that the Deobani sought to strike in the early 20th century and, 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 and using the medium of print and the Urdu language to involve Muslim publics, uh, but, not, but, but also trying to, to make sure that people continue to consult the ulama and, and especially to go to majlises themselves. That, that delicate balance really starts to break down. Um, and in the book, I argue that, that part of that, that, that the breaking down of that balance has to do with a number of things. One is the kind of oversimplification of Deobani argument, um, the, 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 the nature of using kind of short uh, pamphlets in English to try to summarize these kind of complex ideas, which I alluded to earlier. Uh, but most importantly, um, the, the, the shifting political context in which these arguments were made. And so in the, at, towards the end of the book, um, I look at how we, we can really only, only understand the trajectory of Deobani Fana South Africa by looking at the way it transcribed against the background of Muslim anti-apartheid politics. The reason that's important is that all kinds of, well, you can't understand, obviously, you know, mid to late 20th century South Africa without, without understanding apartheid. It affected everyone, uh, Muslims included. And so um, Muslims began to mobilize as Muslims um, uh, against apartheid, in, especially in the, the 1970s. And at the same time that this was happening, you have these Deobandi ulama making these arguments about Sufi saint shrines, right? And a lot of South African Muslims basically said, like, what does this have to do with us? How does this help us? Uh, achieve justice? How does this help us you know, overthrow this tyrannical government? And, and so they began to um, uh, use this kind of emergent political vocabulary to critique, uh, as I said earlier, not, not just the Deopani critique of Sufism, but uh, the nature of the, the authority of the Deopani ulama themselves, which they largely, and I would argue somewhat unfairly regarded as as, as accommodationists um, towards the apartheid regime. And I think one of the ways in which you um, deal with kind of how the, this, um, the public is maintained, um, how tradition is, you know, um, maintained is around these issues with um, devotional Sufism, right? Um, and particularly how these tracts or these primary sources you're engaging with are writing about the you know practices of Ors or Sma or the Maulid, because that was very fascinating in terms of the discourses that circulated around it. And I really love the way that you kind of have this um, use of imagery of the body, the, the text, the space, right? And um, how they're kind of overlapping. So I wonder if you could kind of unpack some of this for us. I know it's a lot, uh, but why, you know, aspects of the Ors or the, the Sama or devotional practices around the shrine, even in the context of, you know, um, South Africa, it becomes more of the problematic of, you know, um, Sufi devotional practices for, um, for this group versus for the ulama um, versus other things. Yes, thank you. Uh, so you're right. This is this is a, a it's a complex um, question and I'm sorry. <laughs> slightly less than complex answer because so, yeah. The, 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 but you do give an answer in the book. So for the listeners, the book is right. a little place to go. Yeah. So uh, at, at the beginning, you 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 referenced how I think about Islamic tradition generally, and and in the book, I I argue that. We have approached, as scholars, we have approached um, conceptualizing tradition largely through the transmission of texts, and that we have we have undervalued the importance of affect in understanding Islamic tradition. And so, for the Deobandis, and I think for any uh, Sufi uh, movements historically and and today, um, affect is just as, if not more, important than text. And what I mean by that is that. The Deobanis um, will say things like, uh, 
it, it, to be to become a Sufi, you can't just read Sufi books. I mean, in the same way that they say to become a legal scholar, you can't just read legal texts. Um, you have to attend a madrasa to become a Sufi. You have to uh, stay at a khanka, a Sufi lodge. You have to um, uh, uh, affiliate yourself with a Sufi master. And, and the way that they describe that relationship is through this deeply affective language in which they say that um, it is the very presence uh, the bodily presence, the emotional presence of the Sufi master or the legal scholar, who for the Deobani is usually one and the same, that uh, uh, not only validates, but also acts to transmit uh, that knowledge, which is not only uh, cerebral knowledge, but also embodied knowledge, right? So you, you, you learn to be a good Sufi, not just by reading Sufi texts, by, but by be, being around Sufis. Um, and uh, I can't remember the, <laughs> the second part of the question that you had asked after tradition. Oh, you were asking about, about what, what this has to do with their critique of, of, of Orson and, and Maulud and Sama, right? Yeah, there's a very fine line, right, to what you've just said, that up to a certain point, um, the presence of the teacher is important, right? Because there is something that they have. But then there's a line from which then it gets to shirk, right? That it's it's the, the venerative practices that perhaps the masses are doing that needs to be stopped. Exactly. And so it's really interesting to think about how that line, fine line is negotiated. Yes, exactly. So in the ideal Deobandi world, which has never existed in reality, uh, uh, Muslims become you know, perfect uh, perfect Muslims by by um, studying the law and and being around uh, Sufis and you know tra- aligning themselves um, with the kind of broader ethos of the Quran and the Sunnah. Um, and, and and as I talk about in chapter three, especially within the context of sort of an emergent anxiety about the colonial crowd in in late colonial India. Um, Deobandis were deeply suspicious of uh, large gatherings of unreformed Muslims around places like Sufi shrines precisely because, in their view, it was antithetical to this kind of of delicate transmission of knowledge and affect that they cultivated in the the Majasa and the Khanqa. So it's not just that uh, a, a Muslim visiting a shrine may inadvertently engage in shirk, right? Or it's not just that a Muslim participating in a celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, the Maulid or the Maulud, uh, may inadvertently um, participate in bidah, right? Uh, illicit innovation. It's, it's that there's something about that uh, kind of mass-mediated collection of unreformed people, unreformed bodies, right, all being in the same place, um, that is uh, uh, troubling to them, again, not just on a kind of intellectual or cognitive level, but on an affective level. And, and in the book, I argued that that's one of the things about the Deobandi critique of uh, Sufism that has been, I think, overlooked by by previous scholars. And so in, in terms of this relationship between uh, tradition and affect that I, I uh, referenced earlier, um, again, this is really two sides of the same coin. It's, there's this sort of uh, delicate relationship between the tr- transmission of knowledge and the tr- transmission of affective sensibilities that they try to cultivate in the Madrasa and the Kanka. Uh, but the flip side of that is the the the, the uh, relative absence of uh, those same uh, forms of knowledge and same sensibilities in the kind of mass gatherings of uh, people at, for example, the Sufi Saint Shrine. And it was so fascinating to read, um, you know, some of the legal discourses or just discourses that were speaking. For instance, when you know the Maulud happens the issue of standing, right, at particular portions of the recitations. What does it imply, right, then? Um, so I think this idea that you're helping us nuance the landscape of um, the Obandi thought um, and how perhaps it's been so flattened as being purely anti-Sufi or um, against Sufism, it was super helpful, especially with some of the sources that you had um, provided within the, in the in your discussion. Yeah, so, uh, again, um, there is this stereotype that the Obandis are 
anti-Sufi, if not Wahhabi, right? So they, they're one of the kind of labels that gets thrown around very loosely. Um, and anti-Deobandi critiques is this, this idea that they're essentially Wahhabis. Uh, I talk about a, a little bit in, in chapter two about why that label um, is really inappropriate on a number of re- for a number of reasons uh, in describing the Deobandis. Uh, but in that oversimplified approach to understanding the Deobandis, two things that gets really overlooked are that uh, they do, in fact, support honoring the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. They do, in fact, even support honoring Sufi saints. Uh, but they do so, again, with this kind of complex, legally informed uh, hermeneutics in mind that they struggle, I think, to communicate to lay Muslim readers. And, and I think the anti-Deobandi stereotypes are uh, a testament to that, to that failure to some extent. Uh, so just to take the example of, of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, um, from the very beginning of the movement, the Obanis have been saying um, it is completely honorable to uh, read stories about the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. Right? Um, and, and, and so in that sense, they, they fully participate in long traditions of, uh, of especially South Asian tra- uh, uh, devotions to, to the Prophet. Uh, what they say is problematic is when Muslims start to regard certain aspects of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday as essentially obligatory. And this gets at the heart of how they conceptualize Bidah. Uh, for them, Bidah is not, as commonly understood, uh, some, some kind of departure from how uh, they did things in the era of the Prophet and, and his companions. In other words, they, they reject the kind of temporal definition of bid'ah, which is to say anything that the Prophet Muhammad didn't do is bid'ah. That's not what they think at all. Uh, they think of bid'ah as a kind of rival to the deen or to, 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 uh, to, the, to the religion. And, and so uh, there are cert- within, within the deen, there are certain practices and beliefs that are deemed obligatory, right? Uh, you know, the, the Salat prayer, the Hajj, etc., uh, many others, there are certain practices that are deemed um, uh, uh, to be haram, right? to be forbidden. And then, of course, there's uh, a, you know, a gradients of, of being obligatory or, or, or forbidden um, in between those two, two uh, poles. And so their, their understanding of bid'ah really revolves around when Muslims, especially lay Muslims, confuse whether something is obligatory or merely recommended. Right? So they may take something that is merely recommended and think it's obligatory. Uh, they may take something that is effectively neutral from the point of view of the law and decide that it's reprehensible or forbidden. And so the example um, with respect to Maulud that comes up a lot is when Muslims start to believe that the Maulud itself is an obligatory aspect of a Muslim's religious life on the level of the Hajj, for example, Uh, or on the level of Zakat. And interestingly, in, in uh, counter-critiques of the, the Deobandi's critiques, Muslims, like in South Africa, for example, will often say, come on, we, we don't actually think that the Maulud is obligatory. No one actually thinks that the Maulud is obligatory. So there's this very interesting uh, kind of um, uh, uh, anthropological way to approach Deobandi critiques, which is to say, on the one hand, we can... We can look at how they articulate these critiques, but on the other, we have to look at how these critiques are actually being received and debated and, and, and contested. Um, because a, a lot of South African Muslims read these critiques and basically said, you know, this doesn't really align or describe uh, 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 the, the way that we understand and, and practice devotions like uh, the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. Um. Another important part of um, and the piece of the argument and the discussion they're having is also the formation of the Tabliki Jamaat, really as a response to, um, again, the service or uh, this relationship to the publics and maybe how the Dioband was not doing a good job in negotiating or relating to the public. And so here develops this um, other movement that's responding. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about why that's important also to the conversation? 
Yes. So the Tablighi Jamaat is a uh, global Muslim revivalist movement uh, that emerged in the 1920s and 30s in North India, and uh, especially through the teaching and writing and preaching of um, a graduate of the Dalalum Deoband um, uh, by the name of Muhammad Ilyas. And uh, Ilyas, uh, well, so in the book, I argue that, 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 that Ilyas was essentially um, trying to rethink the Deobandi reformist program in a way that made it less reliant on uh, its mediation by print, less reliant on texts. Uh, and he tried to reorient it around um, small kind of bands of uh, individuals who would inspire each other and inspire other Muslims to constantly become better Muslims. And this program really emerged directly out of the uh, Deobandi Reformist Project. Uh, but it also, I argue in the book, carried a lot of the same ambivalences. Now, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned this ambivalence about the authority of the ulama, um, especially in, in terms of print, that uh, a, in, the, in the kind of ideal Deobandi world, a Muslim should read texts in Urdu, religious texts in Urdu, uh, and use them to reform himself or herself. Um, but if she has any questions about um, a particularly thorny issue, don't try to figure it out on your own. Always ask the ulama. Uh, so the Tablighis took that idea, that ambivalence, um, and they tried to I think, solve the problem on some level by making it less about uh, texts and more about kind of everyday practice. But they never solved the ambivalence entirely because they continue to have this, this kind of Brought relationship with the ulama, uh, and so I, in the book I talk about some of the ways in which uh, Muhammad Ilyas envisioned the Tablighi Jama'at as at least nominally independent of the larger Deobandi movement. Right? So today, for example, you know, a, a Tablighi might not necessarily identify as a Deobandi, and vice versa. All Deobandis are not necessarily Tablighis. Most Tablighis will probably understand that historically the core ideas of the movement um, came out of, 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 of the Obani thought. Uh, but, but Ilyas um, wanted the, the, the uh, approval of the Deobandi ulama, specifically Ashraf Ali Tanvi, uh, but he didn't really get it at first. And one of the reasons that I that I show that he that that he didn't get it at first is that Tanvi and other ulama basically had the same anxiety about uh, uh, non legally trained lay Muslims going around preaching to each other that they have about non legally trained lay Muslims reading texts, which is that you don't fully understand the issues about which you're speaking or reading, and 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 you have to consult the ulama um, at every level of the process. And uh, in some sense, the, uh, the, tablighi, the history of the Tablighi Jama'at is the history of the movement kind of gradually becoming extricated from that, that conflict. Right? So now um, the, the question of, of whether or not the Tablighis um, uh, should or shouldn't be you know uh, going around preaching to each other is is not really something that that is is can, is is still debated for the most part. Um, and in the book, I argue that by the mid to late twentieth century, the Deobandis um, had mostly decided that the positive effects of what the Tabilis were doing in order to uh, revive lay Muslim religiosity. Uh, essentially canceled out whatever kind of theological risks or legal risks uh, were were raised by having lay Muslims in, uh, becoming involved in in, in, in in lay preaching and other activities. Um, 
One of the things as you begin to conclude the book, you bring us to, and it's something that I think a lot about in my own uh, research and scholarship, is really about what all of this means um, for the fate of Sufism in the 21st century. Especially, I think, um, in your concluding chapters, you kind of highlight some of the things, um, violence that has happened around some Sufi shrines and that continue to, to happen so um, how is what the kind of the um, textual and uh, genealogies of sorts or the, the histories that you've provided in the study um, forcing us really to think about the fate of Sufism in uh, the contemporary context? Yes. So I opened the book with uh, an anecdote about the, the, the day I arrived at the Darlul of Deoband to begin research for the dissertation in which um, some uh, alumni of the institution began to talk with me about why I, I was interested in the Deobandis, um, why I had come to study um, their history. And, and the Taliban, of course, you know, I mean, this is you know, 2009, um, the war on terror was, you know, uh, was, was, was um, you know, um, raging at the time. And, and, and there's a lot of suspicion towards any, you know, white American, non-Muslim white American coming to uh, this revered institution to study. And so I had to explain myself, and, and the question of the Taliban came up right away, because Deobandis, um, then and now, <clears throat> um, uh, tend to think that, that the only reason anyone is ever interested in them is that uh, the Taliban emerged out of Deobandi uh, madrasas. Um, in Northwest Pakistan. <clears throat> and, and so in, in the book, I, I talk about that as the kind of the why of the book, but not the what. And I, 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 I reference it as a topic that I will return to in the conclusion, which I do. Because I, again, I, I want to convey that the Deobandi movement and its history is so much more complex than just the Taliban. Uh, but I can't write a book about the Deobandis without at least talking about the Taliban. And in the context of, of the 21st century, it's not just the Deobandis relationship with the Taliban that has um, uh, caused the most suspicion, but it's also this idea that their critiques of Sufi practices have uh, motivated anti-Sufi violence, especially in Pakistan. And, and I close the book by talking about um, sort of the, 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 the mutually intersecting nature of religion and politics in a place as complex as Pakistan. And, and I essentially say, we need to be careful <clears throat> in assuming that uh, if the uh, Pakistani Taliban attacks a saint shrine on the day of the saint's horse, that that attack is solely, or even largely, uh, motivated by a kind of anti-Sufi antipathy. And, and that we have to understand the larger political context for these kinds of attacks. And so in the conclusion, I actually look at uh, collections of fatwas and other texts produced by the madrasa that gave rise to the Taliban. And I show how, uh, if you look at their writings, they have the same kind of attitude about Sufism that, that all the other Deobandis do for the most part. I mean, with, with, with some exceptions, which I also talk about in the conclusion, uh, which is to say they fully support the idea that any Muslim should also uh, become a Sufi if, if possible. Um, they are supportive of the idea that part of um, a, a Sufi's spiritual self-transformation is revering the Sufi saints, but that that should not be done in such a way that um, perpetuates uh, bidah or shirk. Uh, in other words, they, 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 they kind of go through the whole litany of, of standard Deobandi ideas about Sufism. And so I raise the question, well, um, obviously we can't explain something as complex as Taliban attacks on Sufi saint shrines with reference to fatwas that were, you know, written by muftis at the madrasa that gave rise to the Taliban. But I do think that that gives us some kind of window, even if it's a limited one, 
into understanding their relationship with Sufism and that at the very least, uh, 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 pretending or, 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 or suggesting that, that these attacks, which are obviously horrible, um, uh, arise solely out of some kind of Dio Bondi anti-Sufi hostility. And so I, I close the book by um, rejecting that idea, but also using it as, as a kind of call for scholars, but also policymakers, journalists, et cetera, um, to have a more complex understanding of, of the, the nature of what we call religious violence, right? And <clears throat> what is the, 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 the real, what are the limits of, of using uh, religion to understand acts of violence? And the other thing that you're wanting um, folks who are engaging the book to think about is this kind of the global, the transnational global Islam, um, particularly as you had mentioned throughout, you know, in terms of how um, ideas, texts, bodies, peoples, like the nexus is working in terms of moving from one place to another. And why is this also important for scholars of Islam to think about, especially if they're often so focused in particular historical contexts or particular texts? Why is it sometimes important to look up and see what the bigger, bigger, bigger picture is? Yes, thank you. Uh, the, the, I, I call the book uh, Revival from Below, the Deoban Movement and Global Islam. And the global um, is, is, is a, uh, I think, essential context. And we can debate what we mean by the global, of course, but I think it's essential to understand a movement like the Deoban movement uh, in a global frame. And what I mean by that is we have to look at how these ideas and people and texts and institutions travel and um, how they adapt or fail to adapt as they do so. Uh, and uh, Obviously, I, th I think that that um, there are um, pros and cons in uh, looking at something uh, in a large kind of global frame, just as there are in looking at something in a very spatially and temporally narrow frame. Right? So, for example, the book, uh, as I ended up structuring it, looks at how these debates about Sufism and Islamic law emerge in late colonial India and then travel to South Africa. In the process of taking that global uh, frame into consideration, what I end up not being able to do is look at how those same debates were debated, for example, in India in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, right? So in, because of the constraints of time and space in writing the book, uh, I focused almost exclusively uh, on South Africa during that period. Uh, but I also look at how uh, these debates, as they are transpiring in South Africa, were informed by similar conversations and debates going on in places like, uh, like Pakistan, um, in, in the UK, and, and, and in other uh, regions where uh, Deobandis have have traveled, have um, set madrasas, and have initiated these debates. Um, so listeners who have probably stayed with us this long are likely interested in to see what you're up to these days. So is there another project you're working on, or what can we expect from you in the coming years? Yeah, so my new project, which I'm really excited about, is uh, looking at how Muslims in the modern, in the broadest sense, I'm looking at how Muslims in the modern era have debated the category of religion. Uh, and I, this, this grows a little bit out of chapter one of my current book, of, of the Dale Bundy um, uh, book, uh, in that I argue that the, the, the Dale Bundy Madrasa emerged out of and uh, intersected with a colonial idea about religion as a kind of matter of, of, of um, personal religiosity and, and, and private conscience. And, and so uh, in the second book, I'm interested in, especially in, in Muslims in the 20th century who have rejected what they deem to be a kind of colonial imposition of a certain idea of religion is uh, an idea of religion as 
private matter, matter of uh, personal spirituality, uh, something that is uh, internal, interior, uh, and, and, and in other words, who believe that this kind of colonial concept of religion um, uh, did not align with the kind of political capacities of a concept like the dean. And so in, in part, of, part of the book, I'm, I'm looking at, um, uh, especially at Islamist thinkers and scholars who have essentially rejected the idea that the concept of religion in English aligns with or accurately translates the concept of deen in, in Arabic and other Islamic languages. And their argument is, is basically that uh, religion is apolitical and deen is fundamentally political. Now, of course, I think that that is an oversimplification um, in its own right, but I'm, I'm more interested in uh, why some of these Islamist figures um, made that argument at all. And what are the pathways and the context in which they they came to think about the concept of religion itself in that in that um, highly kind of Protestant way? Uh, and so I'm just beginning this pro- this uh, process. It's still going to be uh, uh, grounded mostly in South Asia, but it's certainly not exclusively in South Asia. Uh, and it's and again, it's also going to be mostly kind of a late 19th, early 20th century project. Um, but in the second project, I'm, I'm really taking up some larger questions that have to do with um, uh, bigger issues in religious studies that, that I've been interested in for a long time and that I didn't, that I hinted at in this first book, but didn't really uh, delve into. That sounds fantastic. And I look forward to it. And once again, Brennan, um, congratulations. I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, I know I will be citing it in my own scholarship. Um, it's It was great. And there's so much we didn't get to. So hopefully the readers can pick up the book and get uh, get into it. And um, so congratulations. And thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, Shobana. I really enjoyed this. Um, and, and, and thank you so much for giving me this opportunity.